I'm very, very excited about today's guest. Corey Mascara is here. He's the author of the new book, Stop Missing Your Life, How to Be Deeply Present in an Unpresent World. And I'm so grateful for the conversation we had. I think this is one of my very favorite episodes for many reasons, but there's so much good information in this podcast from Corey. And so I definitely want you all to take it take it and listen to it and run with it because I believe, believe, believe everything happens for a reason and we are here to live and Corey has some great information on how we can do that better. His podcast is called Practicing Human and I love his tagline, which is every day we are getting a little better at life and that is such a great goal and aspiration and I really enjoyed this podcast. So I hope you do too. And check out his new book, Stop Missing Your Life. It has an awesome cover and um, just a great read, a great read for how to be more present so that we can have a better life. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. I'm very excited about today's guest. Corey Mascara is here. Hi, Corey. Hi, Meredith. I'm so excited to talk to you. I don't really record podcast in the morning, so this is nice. I've got my coffee, (laughs) Um, and so it's kind of cool. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. Are you a morning person? I am a morning person. Yeah, me Which too. Which is probably why I should do podcast in the morning. I know. This is rare for me as well. No one ever has morning slots available. So I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, I actually have started waking up on the regular uh, about 4.30 or 5. And yes. it's been nice. It's hard because I'm tired. I don't – I'm also a night owl. So mm, yeah, <laughs> that both, morning I don't, don't go well. <laughs> But I do like the mornings. What do you like about mornings? Uh, the stillness. And um, I guess there's, well, I've always been a morning person ever since I was a child. And uh, I loved getting a start on the day and exploring things. Uh, that When I was a kid, like I, I loved just thinking about things, tinkering with things. And now as an adult, it's uh, it's a great way for me to get a jump start on my creative ideas. Uh, and like the ego part of me likes getting a lot done before like most people have woken up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there, there's that that's kind of like, oh, cool. It's like I've, I've really I'm squeezing a lot out of the day. Right, right. I mean, it's interesting to look at the clock and it's 1030 in the morning and realize you've done like five hours of stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It's a cool feeling. So let's talk a little bit about your past and where you come from, because you have such a fascinating story. And and then I definitely want to talk about your new book. So you lived as a monk. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's just start, start there. <laughs> or we can go back to childhood or whatever. I mean, well, let's go back a year before that, okay. uh, about a year and a half. Um, really had no interest in anything to do with Buddhism, meditation, mindfulness, presence. Uh, I was in college um, and I had a hippie girlfriend who was into meditation and I started meditating to impress her. I wanted her to think I was cool. Uh, there was no noble intention for it. <laughs> um, very superficial undertaking. Uh, she broke up with me two weeks later and then the pain of that breakup is the thing that really caused me to start taking the meditation more seriously. It was the only thing that was giving me some relief during that time. And simultaneously, um, the the practice itself was showing me was was garnering other interesting benefits, such as improved sleep, uh, improved focus, and this internal uh, sense of happiness or peace. Um, and none of it was was crazy radical, but uh, it was inspiring enough to want to understand this deeper. And I think at at that time in my life, I was. Um, just exploring my identity and what I wanted to do with my life and looking for some clarity. And it was, it was clear to me that the, the main thing I was looking for uh, was just fulfillment to live a good life. And this was the first thing that I was doing that was cultivating a, a, a certain kind of peace that was able to exist uh, without needing to manipulate all of the puzzle pieces of my life, all of the external variables of my life, um, and manufacture that to make the moment look exactly as I wanted it to look. Mm. Most of my pursuit of well-being prior to that was in doing that, arranging all those puzzle pieces, and then when the picture looks good, then I'm happy. Right, and right. That was uh, an exhausting process. And I was simultaneously being disillusioned by that being able to offer any permanent refuge uh, because I knew everything would just it, it, I was just being shown like, oh, I'm really happy in this relationship. And then it ends and now I'm miserable. And I could just see that happening in other areas of my life and wanted to explore something. I wanted to develop something uh, deeper. And I don't think like, I... Did you feel like during the puzzle piece time that you were just always waiting for the other shoe to drop? Like you just knew that someone was going to come up and mess mess with your puzzle? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think... Um, uh, I think my childhood was stable and secure enough that I didn't develop uh, a nervous system relationship to life in that way. Mm -hmm. um, uh and instead, it was it was this because here here's the thing about me going to Burma is that a lot of people um, get into contemplative practices from places of really deep suffering and often really painful childhoods or um, significant loss. And while I had this breakup and it was painful, uh, most of my the rest of my life was actually pretty good. I very privileged uh, upbringing, great family, great parents, good friends. Um, I'd struggle with some anxiety, depression in, in high school, but nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, I, I w there was just this slow disillusion uh, mm -hmm. happening with um, this idea of, of yeah getting things and then uh, that being the thing that was going to lead to fulfillment so I guess yeah I guess it is fair to say after a certain point if there was a waiting for the shoe to drop or waiting for that to dissolve and then it just felt empty yeah and 
the meditation and I really didn't know what I was doing at that point. I'd, I'd just be lying on my dorm room bed and I'd have my hands on my belly. I would just focus on my breath, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And the mind would wander. I come back to the breath, wander, come back to the breath. But doing that enough, I, I was able to get into this rhythm and drop into this space of presence where um, it didn't matter what was going on around me that day or in that moment or what I had to do. I, I was I felt myself getting fuller uh, uh, and more grounded and more at peace, uh, all all from just how I was directing my attention. So that was compelling to me and type A personality. So I said, I, I really want to go deeper into this. If there's anything I could invest my time in, it seems like this might be really worth it. And uh, I was an economics major at the time, kind of got more into psychology and my dad, who is a physician on Long Island, he just happened to be studying positive psychology and mindfulness uh, out of his own personal interest. So through it was just a lot of serendipity. And I, I came home, talked to him about it. He said, you know, if you want to go into this deeper, you can. There's science supporting it. Um, and then for that next year, I, I got really into secular mindfulness uh, which when I say secular mindfulness, that's just when people hear of mindfulness and meditation these days, usually it's in the, the secular realm. So not connected to any particular spirituality or uh, or faith tradition mm -hmm. and uh, explored the science of it, started going on retreats. And as I was going deeper, I, I saw that a, a lot of my teachers um, had uh, had gone on extended silent retreats and many of them in South Southeast Asia uh, I studied with some great Buddhist meditation teachers. And that was the first time I started getting interested in Buddhism a little bit more. Um, and, and so, I, yeah, I, as I said, type A, I kind of just jumped <laughs> into things. And I said, all right, cool, that's what I want to do now. And when I graduated, I, um, I went over to, to Burma and did a six-month, uh, six-and-a-half-month silent meditation retreat where, and this is kind of where the story, the podcast was beginning, um, where I lived as a monk, uh, we wake up at 3 a.m. So talk about being morning person. <laughs> it's a whole other category of being a yeah, morning. 3 a.m. is intense. <laughs> it, it's Yeah, you get used to it, but it is intense in the beginning. Um, so wake up at 3, go to bed at 10, have to do a minimum of 14 hours of meditation each day. Uh, no reading, no writing, no listening to music, no contact with the world, no speaking. Wow. So, yeah, so just a full-on uh, monastic experience. And at uh, any point, did you think you were going to die? Because, <laughs> like, to yeah. me, that feels like nearing death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were a lot of interesting moments like that. So, you know that, and I know you're being like a little facetious with that, but also, it, no, it, not really. I, I think, like, I feel like if I, I honestly think that. I wasn't, I mean, it was a little facetious. I guess it was a little, but I mean, it, it really feels like that would be very hard. Very, very hard. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and it is, um, especially in the beginning and the, the idea of like feeling like you're going to die is an interesting one in that context, because you, you are often working with very primal parts of the brain. And in in that kind of intensive meditation, you know, a lot of people think meditation, you just sit down, close your eyes, you know, focus on your breath, be at peace, and then come out the other side refreshed. Uh, when, when you're doing this practice for that many hours, that intensively and in, in, in that kind of setting, 
yes, there can be a tremendous amount of peace and ease and joy uh, and the pleasure of non-distraction. Uh, and at the same time, you're you're delivered right into your face a whole other world that you've been um, completely neglecting. And that's usually your your inner world, all of your thoughts, all of your past regrets, all of your uh, physical pains in the body. All of that just comes up when you're bringing that degree of presence to your experience. And uh, it's an important part of cultivating greater embodiment and a sense of uh, wholeness, a, a happiness that comes through wholeness. Because so much of us are trying to develop happiness, uh, well-being by, you know, accumulating more of the good stuff and trying to manage the bad stuff as best as possible. But usually we end up suppressing some of that, pushing it aside and going on with our life. Um, and that stuff really doesn't go away. It often just accumulates more and more and more. And unless it can be met with uh, with awareness and presence so that it can be integrated and held rather than com- compartmentalized and suppressed, um, then we're always kind of walking around in a, a half-hearted way, only half embodied, kind of experiencing the goodness of life, but not all of the richness. We go through periods where we start to numb, disconnect from ourselves, not able to connect as much with other people. We get edgy because we're holding a lot of stuff beneath the surface of our mind. And so all of that, it just it builds over the course of a lifetime. And when I went in there, I was I was 22. So um, I didn't have a, like 50 years of a lifetime but but quite a bit uh, that had that was still that would still come up, and the the big thing early on was actually physical pain uh, more than emotional or psychological. They all ended up being uh, woven into the same fabric, but um, lots of physical pain that I had to stay present with in the meditation practice, mainly from sitting for f- that many hours per day. Uh, sleeping on mattresses that were so thin you could squeeze them between your fingers and feel the bone on the other side. Mm. Uh, just a lot of things that that were austere. And and so going back to this idea of like, did I feel like I was going to die? When the the the, the brain's relationship to pain associates it with the potential, often for for death, danger. And so the the knee jerk response, the the impulse, the intuition is to uh, retreat from that very quickly. And if you stay present to it, the brain can have a bit of a tantrum um, where it's like, no, got to get out of here, got to get out of here, got to get out of here. Uh, and it can feel very intense. And you can get to very deep places of that staying with pain where you work with just some of those really primal um, fear mechanisms in the brain that it's like, wow, the, the, the hardware is so fascinating. And you can see how you can... Um, just be reacting to that often uh, unconsciously throughout your life. Anything that comes up triggers that fear response to go, won't go there. So I, I, I enjoy, I hate it, but I enjoyed learning about that and being able to notice that tendency, not immediately fuel it and then start to find some peace within it. And when you start to find peace with it, then it actually starts to soften and you can hold and be present to really large amounts of physical pain, emotional pain, um, spiritual pain, we might say, mm-hmm. without having to, to run away. And uh, that to me is a, a superpower in, in day-to-day life. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a little bit about that in my book about how we can't begin to change or heal or move forward until we've f- dealt with what's in front of us. And so, mm-hmm. and, and I've noticed a lot of people 
will read my book and they're like, oh, I started it and then I put it in the freezer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like or like Joey on Friends is, is the running joke in one of my groups because it's it's like the thing we don't want to face. And that's what we've been doing our whole life, whether it's the pain from the trauma of our past or just anger, emotions. When we get close to that, like isn't most people's reactions to back off, to run? I mean, how do we how do we face that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's your process? Right. Right. So yes, most people's response there is, is to turn away from those moments. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a, um, there are two key things that I often help people with when it comes to this. There's the formal practice of developing a, a container, an inner container that can hold and be with discomfort. Um, because for, for like many, that idea, an inner container. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you think of, um, uh, right, this is probably a big cliche example, but you take a teaspoon of dirt and, uh, you pour it into a cup of water. It completely, uh, clouds the water. You can't even see any clarity. It's just total dirt. But you take that same cup of, uh, teaspoon of dirt and you put it in a, a pond or a lake. It doesn't have much of effect at all. Um, when we're working with a small internal psychological and emotional container, when these experiences come up, they become the entire experience itself, it just completely clouds our whole glass in that moment. It's all we can see. Uh, and that creates a, a lot of fear and lack of clarity. One, the, the best thing I've found so far, and it's most likely not the only thing, but, um, what a meditation practice does uh, is it is it trains you to see all of these things that are coming up in your experience and to not get so fixated on them as who you are, what your identity is, or the only thing happening in that moment. Um, and anyone that's kind of en endeavored into a meditation practice, let's say it's very simply like you're focusing on the breath, inhale, exhale, you'll notice that thoughts come up. You can watch the thoughts, watch them come, watch them go, and back to the breath. And so those those thoughts, the more you do that process of mind wandering, come back, mind wandering, come back, the more you see I don't have to take those thoughts so seriously or those thoughts that that I'm often just swimming in are something that I could turn my attention away from or just watch like clouds passing through the sky. All of that is is dropping you more into the dimension of yourself that we might call awareness. Right. It doesn't have to be it's some people might call it your higher self. Some people might call it your spirit, your soul, you know, for the sake of simplicity. There's just there's a part of you that can be aware of what is happening without being sucked into what is happening. Mm. Your awareness of pain is not going to be in pain. Your awareness of fear is not going to be fearful. It sort of is like the canvas for your life that that hangs out in the background. Most of us are disconnected from that. And um, a meditation practice uh, doesn't develop it because it's already there. It drops us back into that place of being able to observe what is happening without being sucked into what is happening. So when it comes to building that container, the, the reason I come back to meditation in my teachings is, uh, uh, is because it's one of the best ways I've found to develop that container. Uh, and then once once we have that a little bit more, once we're a little better 
at being able to stay present to experiences without immediately shutting down to them. It still takes reminders and practice to bring that into day-to-day life. Like I still need to catch myself. I did a whole um I did a whole podcast episode recently on procrastination mm-hmm. and per- Procrastination being the the uh, refusal or inability to be with difficult emotions, refusal or inability to be with difficult emotions. And if you think about it, or I'll just make it personal, a lot of times, like I, I wake up in the morning after my meditation, I will uh, go into my work, um, and I'll usually have an accumulation of a lot of emails that I haven't taken care of, the ones I don't want to that are going to take a while. You just star them and then they yeah, sit there for weeks. That's for weeks, for weeks. weeks. It's so bad. And so eventually I go into them. They're like the 10 to 20 minute emails. They're just right. going to take a long response. And I start going through it. And then just, you know, five minutes later, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> or I'm scrolling through Instagram, and I have no idea how I got there. It just right. happened seamlessly. And if you really break that down into what's happening, right? I'm I'm working on that email. Okay, all right. I gotta say this. Gotta say this. Oh, I do not want to think through this right now. I do not want to find that attachment that I need to send. This, this. <laughs> and then what does the mind do? It just deflects and goes to something else. So. there's either there's either a refusing to be with that like i don't want to do this right now or an inability right there's just like the the mind is not capable of staying present to it i think for the most part we usually have the ability to stay with that discomfort because eventually those emails are going to get done it's more catching ourselves when we have that quick deflection to turn to something else and that's where if I can catch myself in those moments of like, oh, here's that pattern again of procrastination, turning away from discomfort, let me just bring that into the forefront of my awareness. All right, it feels uncomfortable. It feels this is going to be super tedious. Uh, I'm frustrated that I have to do that. I, I bring that into my awareness so I can see it, so I can feel it, so that's not operating in the background. I take a breath. Give myself about two or three seconds just to stay with it. And then I work through it. So I I keep working even while that's there. And if I can do that for about 10 to 20 seconds, it's usually enough to break through that wall of resistance and get a little bit of momentum until I hit the next wall and I got to do the same thing. Um, but, But that's really it. It's like it's a coming back to those moments where we we go on automatic pilot and we default to um, to what feels easier and more entertaining and more fun. Right. And we're wired to do that. Nobody wants to be with discomfort. But the, the painful truth is that to get where we want in life, uh, even if that means more connection with someone and having to have a difficult conversation to get that connection through vulnerability, like that requires feeling some discomfort. And, uh, and so for that reason, we're working through our, uh, our instinctual biology and neurology. Well, this morning when, when you first logged on and you said, Hey, how are you doing? And I was like, terrible. Because yeah. I, I, everyone always says, great, great. But it, you know, it was kind of a joke, but I had a tough morning for some of the reasons you just mentioned. Um, I had a lot to do. And I also, I struggle with, if I don't have my act together, near perfectly, I struggle with helping other people. And I know that's ego, um, but I do some coaching. And so I had to read some journals and do some responses this morning. And that is the biggest thing I procrastinate with because I feel that I have to be in this really 
helpful and perfect almost space with myself in order to be valuable to other people. And that's, again, I know that's rooted in ego, but I think what you just, you just said is really helpful for me to kind of get over that hump. Cause the same thing happens to me. I'll sit down to do a, a detailed response and really take in, you know, this client's work and everything. And then I'm like on Facebook because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh, it's too much. I don't, how am I helpful? I can't be helpful. I'm not helpful. And it sends me down this, this procrastination, like rabbit hole when really if, you know, you have to like, I have to center myself and be like, no, I'm here to be of service and mm-hmm. calm down and <laughs> just go, you know? So yeah. I think that's really helpful what you just said. Yeah. And, and I so appreciate you sharing your process with that because I think most people in the, the helping space uh, can identify with that. And also this really deep rooted um, belief we have, and it's not necessarily wrong, but that, you know, we want to be at our best in order to help another person. And that's something I continually am trying to catch myself with. Uh, A lot of it's come from working with these new coaches that, uh, uh, that I've been uh, involved with. They're, they're part of this community called Circling Europe. And circling is a relational meditation practice where you kind of, uh, essentially what you do in meditation, you just do that with another person and you you bring up what's coming up for you in real time into the relationship with another person. And so the the coaching calls that I'll have with this, uh, with whoever um, about this uh, or just about like life in general, there's a real... Um, uh, encouragement and openness on both sides to stay present to and true with what's arising. Um, and I've had experiences where well, he'll even say something like he'll yawn and be like, yeah, this is, um, I'm kind of tired of this conversation right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I'm paying you for this. Uh, and, wow. and so I get to, I get to like notice my response to that, yeah. but But what it's doing is it's opening the container for presence in just a radical way to stay true with what's coming up. And he's not saying I want to leave this conversation, but he's acknowledging that maybe there's some wisdom in that fatigue that maybe like what I'm saying, I'm just running the same script over and over. And he might not have words for why it's creating fatigue, but there might be something that's just like there's there's no aliveness in it more in it anymore and so that might lead to all right well what what could be leading to this maybe he's just tired um but we connect through all the dimensions of the humanness rather than trying to connect in spite of those things that we we often think we need to like push aside in order to really be at our best right so it's a new thing i'm exploring and i i get in different contexts like you can't always you know (laughs) It's probably not going to work in every context. Corey, you're boring me to death. Exactly. (laughs) It's something I've been uh, thinking about. But I mean, think about if that was the world we lived in, where you just said what you felt and everyone, no one took it personally. And I mean, that's terrifying to think about. But um, there is power in in honesty and, and connecting on a level where you're heard and you can hear other people and not take it so personally because this world man we're all taking everything personally yes and the the with that kind of practice it really requires um a, a very good understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it it's it's a commitment to cultivating an insight and an understanding about yourself about life about how you come across 
Um, you can't, in my opinion, um, just go into, you know, a, a, your first date with that kind of uh, <laughs> honesty. I mean, because th- we need some sensibility and we, there's some uh, social uh, socialization that happens that that is important. But it happens too much where if, if somebody's really annoying us or doing something that that is just off and we know it's off, we usually won't tell them or uh, our, we put up with it, internalize it. We put up with it, internalize it, and it like rots inside of us. <laughs> yeah. Or we just like stop talking to this person. They never get the feedback. They never know what they were doing. And then it just creates more of a disconnect. And I, I think if we we could move into those relationships, those conversations with a little bit more honesty, with the honesty not being for the sake of um, just saying everything that's running through me, but rather to create connection through that, acknowledging that by not naming some of these things, we're subconsciously creating more disconnect, then I think that's a, a powerful way to explore connection in the world. And I agree with you, it, it, would, uh, it would be liberating for many of us. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about presence. What mm. is presence? Yeah. Well, um, presence is still a hard thing to define because there are different ways that it's being talked about these days. I think when a lot of people think about just being present, um, we're thinking about you know not being on our phones. Um, while we're having a conversation, really listening to that conversation, or maybe not being totally caught in thoughts about the future and the past. And that's one way to talk about like being present for sure. But for me, like developing presence is a much more embodied, integrated way of being. Being present is more something that we can do, a quality of awareness, but presence is something that we're developing, a, a place that we can get to and inhabit. And the way I talk about it um, in in my book, uh, Stop Missing Your Life, is um, is we're softening some of those some of the walls that we've put up over the course of a lifetime that keep us safe, but also disconnected and protected. Um, That's really good. Say that again. We're softening the walls. We're softening the walls that us safe, but also disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, I call the, those the the walls of guarding that. Um, that get put up through the various traumas of life. Right? Maybe we were a little kid and our heart was totally open and the people that were supposed to love us most, our parents, um, didn't and we felt abandoned and it was just too painful to um, to keep our heart open in that way and not have it received and met. So what do we do? We learn that, it's, um, that I shouldn't do that. So we put up a wall around our heart. And then 20 years later, we're trying to get into a, a relationship and deepen intimacy. And uh, we're running into all of these blocks because we don't actually know how to how to give this other person our, our, our heart for them to see us and for us to be seen. And so we have all of these different walls that accumulate over the course of a lifetime. And a big part of developing presence, like full embodiment and wholeness within yourself is seeing that these walls that have disconnected us, that have compartmentalized us, that have caused us to only bring out parts of who we are. Um, and, and having an honest conversation with those walls of are they still necessary or were they just put in place at a certain point in time um, 
where the context is no longer relevant to us. So the first first couple chapters of the book talk about those walls and how softening those walls is the first step um, to developing uh, presence. But people will hear that and go, okay, so maybe maybe Corey's saying like this is just about getting back to our baby-like selves where we had no walls, we were just totally open and free, full permission to be ourselves. Like that sounds like it would be enlightenment. And uh, to that, I say, well, yes, and not quite. There is a certain kind of presence that uh, little children have and a freedom that they have to be themselves that is, I think, beautiful and um, uh, contagious. We, we love it. We, we can't get enough of it. Uh, we see it and we go, wow, that's, there's something precious in that. But at the same time, babies and little kids are, are still suffering quite a bit. There's still a lot of crying. Yeah, um, right. They don't have as much autonomy, you know, kind of peeing their pants when they right. want fighting to. Fighting the world. They're fighting the world, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't really have a voice yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can't communicate. So, so that's, I wouldn't say that that's presence itself, that there's a freedom there. But what we, what a baby will do as it's developing into an adult in a healthy way is build up the inner resources to navigate the different emotions that come up, the thoughts that arise, um, the sensations in the body, to be able to experience these things as part of their humanness, but not have to shut down, turn away from, or internalize them as like, oh, I'm sad, that must be mean I'm like a sad person or I'm depressed. Instead, just, all right, this is an emotion that can be experienced. Um, and it's part of a lot of what can be experienced, all contributing to the wholeness of who I am. Uh, we can see how uh, sometimes that can get developed with certain parts of ourselves. But for a lot of us, we don't really get that education. So um, the way I talk about presence in the book is softening those walls of guarding and then simultaneously building up those new internal resources that allow us to to meet and hold the many dimensions of our humanness in such a way that we don't immediately need to change them or get rid of them in order to feel a sense of okayness or peace. And, um, you know, that's a big journey. It's a, it's a journey of a lifetime. Yeah. But I really try to um, take the reader's hand in this book and walk them through uh, what that would look like and what it would be like to build some of those foundational resources and start to move through some of those walls of guarding. I think that's such a great analogy. I mean, and, and I think when we look back on, on childhood or teenage years or young adulthood, we if we're not paying attention, we don't even know we have these walls. Like I, I've been through some deep exploration the last two years. And one of the things that I came to realize is that I grew up really quick. I, I was like an eight-year-old adult. And I took great responsibility for myself, for my family. And it was like I, I had this shift where this wall went up that said, okay, playtime is over. Now it's time to get serious about everything. Everything is very serious. Everything is very heavy and you must carry it. <laughs> and, you know, I know why all that happened now. Um, but to realize that as a 40-year-old, I still have those walls up. That that tell me I have to carry everything. You are a very serious, very, very serious 40-year-old now. Um, you know, to soften that and learn how to dance and learn how to really play and laugh, especially with my kids. Um, because the first few years of their life, 
I did them a great disservice because I did not play with them in a way that, because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to play. And so now they're they're like, man, why are you so goofy? Because they're, you know, preteens. And they're like, oh, gosh, mom, like, no more. <laughs> no more playing. You're embarrassing me. But um, I'm like, sorry, mom's just learning how to be a child. Wow. Um, but softening those walls, like, that is so powerful that you say that. And I feel that with every every part of me right now because learning to – to feel those experiences that maybe we, we didn't get to feel or um, like that's what presence is for me right now mm-hmm. is being playful and, and silly and um, really recognizing that it's okay to be still, that I don't have to carry anything right at this moment, you know? And, and so I, I really yeah. appreciate those analogies. And, and I'd love to hear Meredith, how you're, how you're going about some of that for yourself, because it does seem like you're, you're putting it into practice and you are softening those walls. What, what has that looked like for you um, in real time? Yeah. So I fought meditation forever. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I did this podcast for two years and, and at the end I'll ask you a question about what you do on a daily basis that makes your life great. And like 80% of my guests said meditation. Wow. I was like, Oh, stop it. Like, and it became a joke. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to meditate. And then, I had Emily Fletcher, who's the founder of Ziva Meditation. I had her on the podcast, and she's like, I'm going to gift you my course and just do it and then report back. And I was like, well, if she's going to make me do it, I'll do it. And I did, and it really cracked me open. But then during that process, I kind of uncovered some childhood trauma, and so meditation became really tough because, as you know, probably in – in instances of trauma, sometimes meditation has to sit on a shelf for a little bit because yes. you got to, you know, work through it. And so I did that and I'm back to meditating um, and I'm so grateful for it. I don't make it, you know, the way I put it into practice is I'm also very type A. And so I have a lot of issues with, I don't want to waste time. I need to get on this. There's things to do that, you know, I'm, I'm working from home. I've got two kids, all this stuff. And so for me, practice is carving out the time and not allowing my mind to run away with me to, to be still like Ryan Holiday's book stillness is the key has been great for me um, as well as ego is the enemy mine <laughs> that's a big one too but putting being aware of what my walls <laughs> as you put it and my tendencies have been for my whole life that did not serve me mm. and and to realize when I'm I'm about to just kind of run off with that old mindset. I can recognize, hey, that's the old mindset. We're doing something different. Be still. And 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 a lot of it is just stopping moving for a second because I know with my kids it's really easy to constantly be running around and they pick up on that energy. Mm-hmm. And for many years, I didn't realize what it, what damage I was doing in, in their lives and in my own life by always running around and being like, hurry this, hurry this, and we got to do this. And, you know, just stopping and looking at my kids when mm-hmm. they're talking, you know, mm-hmm. facing them. And so it, it really is just a matter, I think, putting it into practice for me is being mindful um, in a way that takes a lot of work. It's so much easier to not think yeah, yes. <laughs> and to not be aware. And so I, I just, I, I think to myself, I, I really think be present. Yeah. I, I say that to myself, be present, look at, you know, look at your children. And I also think, um, 
time is going fast. I, I try and remind myself that all we have is this moment. Mm. I've had a lot of friends and people lost this last year, a lot of deaths. And I just try to remember that we are not promised anything. Mm. And um, to live in, in that moment, it, it's it's a lot of things. I wish I could point to one thing, but I, but starting the day with the meditation I resisted for so many years has been the greatest gift, honestly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. That's a lot. See? <laughs> oh, it's so great, but you bring in so many important things. And, um, you know, the, the, when I first started teaching, I didn't really think I was going to work with trauma. I, you know, I thought it was more reserved for talk therapy or, painful conversations about childhood. And, you know, I was really excited about mindfulness because I was like about being in the present. And, um, and I was just so naive. Um, and I just quickly saw that like it, uh, the majority of the people that I was working with had traumas. Uh, and the way I talk about trauma in the book is, is in such a way that everyone can identify something that has sort of like compartmentalize them or made them feel a little less whole or safe to be themselves. Um, but some of us have that on a micro level and a macro level, and you can't really do the work of being in the present fully without acknowledging how the past it informs what it means to show up as you in the present. Right. And sometimes when you're working through that, when it comes back up, and as you said, after going through Emily's course, something had cracked open, I can feel very raw to to sit with your experience um, in a way that that can be too much. And I do want people to to hear this because it's an important point that um, you do not have to push through the meditation in those moments. I think your wisdom and intuition there, Meredith, was uh, was spot on. Um, and and instead, there are other ways, just just like titrating um, and pendulating, stepping in and stepping out, stepping in, stepping out, because uh, it can be so disorienting to go full into those emotions and not feel any boundaries or anything to hold or grab or sense of self. That's not really what we're we're going for. Um, and at the same time, we need to start opening up to it, uh, which makes it hard. But being patient, giving it giving it space. Um, and then often on the other side of that, sitting in stillness can feel so much more nourishing and fulfilling. Right. And I found too, like during working through that journaling was a way of sort of meditating without feeling as dark, mm-hmm. you know, so I, w- I would take the, I think carving out the time no matter what is important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would carve out the time to journal versus sitting in meditation. And that felt safer because you mentioned the words, you know, you're really trying to find a, a place of safety. Yes. That's where the trauma was, you know, that's where it got lost, right? And you now, you need to make sure you're safe. And so, yeah, that, that's what yeah. it was for me is finding, okay, what is a safe place to work through this? Yeah. The, um, the end of chapter two uh, is titled um, Safety, the Linchpin of Presence. Uh, and I consider real presence um, all about safety. And that's a complicated word because, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean we're, we're just creating a life where we, we don't experience any pain or uh, we try not to get triggered or go in circumstances that wouldn't make us feel uncomfortable? No, not at all. That's that's not realistic. And um, that that wouldn't actually be living the fullness of, of life. Um, there's there's an external safety, which can be extremely important for uh, for moments like 
like this when we're going through trauma where we really do want to maybe separate ourselves from people that would typically activate us in in a very negative way or put ourselves into spaces that do feel deeply safe and nourishing so the nervous system can relax like that does have a, a role but then there's also an internal safety that that we develop over the course of a lifetime and you know this is when you see people that are are able to be themselves um, and and fully embody themselves in the world, even when that embodiment or that version of them is not always received well by other people or it's oppressed. Um, like for for that person, they've developed something within themselves. I call it an internal safety, where it feels okay to be themselves, regardless of what the outside world might think or other people might think. Um, and I I think the process of developing presence, and I, I talk about it in four parts. Um, which I'll get into in a moment, uh, is really about developing an internal safety where we can be in the fullness of our experience with the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, and still feel okay. Once we do that, then we can take that with us into uh, all the different domains of our life um, and show up fully and integrated. And um, and that's, that's a prerequisite for full embodied presence. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't even come across the, the term safety until a couple years ago. And, and that, that was something I realized I did not experience much internal safety. I had no internal safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also was always in a kind of fight or flight response. Just my whole life had been that way because of, you know, other safety. And so that concept has been sort of the the grounding part for me is just find find your safe place you know and find your internal safety and so i like the way that you've divided those up because that that's very important the internal versus the external yeah yeah, yeah. cool um so what what were you going to say about four parts yeah so yeah. When you said before, about 10 minutes ago, you had said something like, and so the big thing I'm doing right now is just like being present with my kids being present. Um, I kind of break that down in the book of what that can actually look like if we were to break that into parts. If people are exploring, what does it mean to develop presence? Um, So so I have this four-part model that conveniently creates the acronym FACE. It's focus, allowing, curiosity, and embodiment. And I think we can all kind of like connect to that even in this moment, right? So a focus, this quality of uh, uh, being able to sustain attention and attune to what is happening right here. It's um, it's a stabilizing of our awareness. So often we're from one thing to the next, we can't do anything really uh, or develop any sort of presence without first having that stability. So that's the, the dimension of focus. And you can practice it right now as you're listening to this, just what is it like to be attuned in that way? And then there's allowing, and this uh, refers more to the mind's ability to uh, be with and move with the flow of life as it's coming through us. A lot of times something comes up and we get stuck with it or we constantly ruminate about it. Um, but uh, allowing is this internal kind of allowing where we've, we're giving ourselves permission to be human, experience what's coming up for that to come and for that to pass. Um, and and move fluidly through us. 
Uh, and you could even attune to that right now. So focus, the quality of allowing, noticing what you're feeling in response to what I'm saying. Am I talking too much? Am I talking too little? Do you like my <laughs> voice? Do you not like my voice? All of that. And your response to it is perfectly valid. And then there's curiosity. And this is the thing that pulls us a little closer to our experience. I consider uh, curiosity to be the glue to the present moment. Um, the beauty of curiosity is that I, I think it is the opposite of fear. So fear causes us to turn away. Curiosity causes us to lean in. Uh, fear presupposes that something isn't safe. Curiosity presupposes that it is safe. Um, and so curiosity is very playful. And as soon as we embody a mind state of curiosity, we just become a little more interested in, in what is happening right now. Um, and that is a, a we there are different dimensions of that. Like we could be really curious and just like, oh, what is this? I got to get really into this. Or there can be a more open curiosity where we're just sort of like observing and bringing a gentle wonder to our life. And so you could do that in this moment as well. We have focus, so stabilizing attention, allowing, making space for what's coming up, and a curiosity of like, oh, what is this moment like for me right now? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? What is it like to be me? And then there's embodiment. And this is to ensure that we don't make this a very sterile, just purely like brain oriented practice of be present, focus on the moment. Um, where as human beings alive on this earth, we we experience life through the body. And, you know, with the exceptions of sometimes like very deep transcendent experiences that can happen um, in really deep practices where you get glimpses of what it might be like to not have a body. As long as you're functioning in the world and having conversations and living in this body, um, that requires feeling things. And often if we're not feeling something, um, it tends to be a bit of a disconnection, dissociation, not necessarily in a pathological way, but just because we live in a culture that doesn't really encourage too much embodiment. The bodies are essentially a, a, a way to carry our brains around. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so in this moment, as you're listening, right, focused, allowing, curious, what is it like to also feel the, uh, the full body experience of this? What's happening in your body, in your shoulders, in your jaw? Just um, the, the sense of having a body listening to this and taking this moment in uh, in whatever way you are. All of those when they come together, focus, allowing, curiosity, and embodiment creates, a, in my opinion, a, a moment of presence and the more we can deepen that as a unit, the deeper we go into this quality of presence of softening those walls of guarding and simultaneously building new resources to hold and develop more dimensions of our life. That's nice. I think I've, I've kind of hit the first three. Yeah. Um, but embodiment, I mean, my friend, Britt Frank, she's a psychotherapist. She, she says, uh, she calls it a floating head that many of us are just floating heads and um, that's how I've lived most of my life. So embodiment is, that's the challenge for me is to, to feel all of these experiences in my body. Um, so I, that I'm wrangling that one and I call it wrangling because it's what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, gotta drag this body, you know? Um, yeah. Wake up. I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's hard when you've not been in your body for, you know, four decades. Yes. And the, uh, it's, um, 
uh, you're not alone in it. (laughs) What I see on a a daily basis. And um, when I'll run retreats or workshops and we'll, we might do something, you know, uh, or I'll say something like, just see if you could feel your breath or feel um, if we do a body scan meditation, feel the sensations in your feet. Um, And and, uh, many people will say, I don't feel anything. And that's normal. Um, And normal in the sense that many of us experience that. Um, But it doesn't have to be that way. And often that disconnection from the body can also disconnect us from the the richness of joy that we can experience because emotions are happening in the body too. So the main thing I'd say for anyone that maybe resonates with that um, is one, just showing a lot of self-compassion. A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times the one reason we can disconnect from the body is just that it's been painful to be in the body. The body has been dismissed or oppressed in certain ways. And so we haven't internalized wanting to get away from the body or not liking the body. Um, and so bringing self-compassion to that journey, of even when we're not feeling, like we're lying down, hands on the belly, just maybe trying to sense what it's like to have a body. If we don't feel anything, like the, 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 the next step to me would just be like, it's okay. And tell the body it's okay. Like, I know you're trying. You're not doing anything wrong. You don't have to feel anything in this moment. I'm just here to be with you. Um, and and start with that. And that's going to open something that will allow sensations to start to feel safe to experience uh, again. So um, it's a beautiful journey of, of reconnection. Um, and it's okay wherever anyone is at on it. Yes. Well, Corey, thank you so much. Your podcast is called Practicing Human. And I I love it because you say every day we're getting a little better at life. And I think that's such a great tagline. Thanks, Meredith. That's all we're doing, man, trying to get a little better. Yes, (laughs) we're all trying. That's great. And your new book, Stop Missing Your Life, How to Be Deeply Present in an Unpresent World, is available where all the books are sold. I think we have the same publisher. Um, To Capital. Yeah. 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 When so, did yours um, come out again? Mine was December 17th. So oh, I think we were around the same time. Yeah. 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 I, I kept seeing that. us pop up on Amazon together and I was like, I, I'm going to look at this. And I looked at it and I was like, Ooh, I want to interview him. <laughs> I love your, I love your, um, your cover, by the way. It's just really catchy. It stands off the shelves. It's like, um, and the, it's just year of no nonsense. So it's like yeah. very clear, uh, good branding. Oh, well, I can't take credit for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, likewise. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Corey. I would ask you what's something you do on a daily basis that makes your life great, but I suspect it's meditating. But do you have have another thing that you do every day that that sort of contributes to your best life? It's a great question. And, you know, I'll give something other than meditation um, because I don't actually know what I have that I do every single day. There are a lot of days where the meditation gets lost, book writing, book writing about meditation. Surprisingly, a lot of time caused me to let go of my meditation practice for days. Um, And so if there's one thing that I really appreciate about myself that I do every day, that's probably more uh, subconscious. um, It's that like I let the day kind of unfold as it, as it did and then just say, okay, how can we do the next day? How can we best approach this next day 
sort of letting go of whatever happened and meeting the next day fresh um, and excited and optimistic. That has definitely been a theme in my life and um, I think allows for creativity, playfulness, not holding on to things that didn't go well um, and really just living life with a lot of uh, passion and enthusiasm. And I do feel like that has, if anything, has really helped make my life great. Thank you, Corey. Thanks, Meredith. It was such a pleasure being with you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.